Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to this week's edition of the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Jerry Colonna to the show today. He is an American venture capitalist and professional coach who played a prominent part in the early development of Silicon Valley. He is the recipient of numerous awards and a speaker on topics ranging from leadership to starting businesses. He's been named to Upside Magazine list of the 100 most influential people of the new economy, Forbes ASAP's list of the best VCs in the country, and Worth's list of the 25 most generous young Americans. He is a co-founder and CEO of the executive coaching and leadership development company Reboot. He is the host of the Reboot podcast, and he also serves as chairman of the board of trustees of Naropa University. He is also the author of Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Welcome, Jerry, to the show. Thank you, Tiffany. It's a delight to be here. Well, I I couldn't help but say when I saw the the art of growing up, I had to have you on the show because I (laughs) I need to figure this one out. (laughs) But before we dig into that, I'm going to start off the show with something I like to call bullish and bearish. Uh, It is just a fun way to get the audience um, and our listeners sort of ready for our time together and, and for us to sort of have a little fun in the beginning of this podcast. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one, robots as leaders of humans. Bearish. Oh, that was quick. Oh, no, no hesitation. I'm going to do a part B then. Robots as leaders of robots. Bearish. Okay. So always the human leader. I'm getting always. The okay. Human. All right. The Otherwise second, it's not leadership, but we'll follow so, up. We'll follow up. So that, you know, the, the, uh, I have never done a B, but I, I was forced. <laughs> I was forced. All right. So the, so the second one, daily mantras we learn at childhood shape who we are as adults. Bullish. Excellent. All right. And the third we can build better leaders by building better humans. Bullish. Excellent. Well, I led you right to the water on those because I was, <laughs> I, was yeah, I, tried- I was waiting. I was like, Are she, is she kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, but that's the way to sort of ease people into what this is all right. going to be about, right? One fun one, and then we get into the serious stuff. But let, let's start with the fun one. Let's start on the robots. Let's, let's start why you, you know, answered so quickly on that, that you just, um, you know, are not a fan of, of, of that sort of approach. Let me tell you a quick story. Um, about two years ago, as part of an application to, uh, we run these multi-day immersive retreats called boot camps, and uh, people apply to come to them. And as part of the application process, there was a young woman who was a uh, first-time CEO. I would, I'm going to say she was under 25, and her application broke my heart. And what she, she had um, studied engineering in college and uh, she graduated with a CS degree. And she, um, her number one question was, why aren't human beings like software programs? Because it would just be so much easier if they were. And uh, it broke my heart because I understood what she was really going for. What she was really going for is, why aren't human beings predictable? Uh, relatively easy to program. We'll get back to programming humans. And why why isn't it that when I put input, I get the output that I expect? 
And uh, she came to the camp and we unpacked a series of internal structures around her that really helped her understand why she was so fixated on this as a model. Um, she left the camp, raised $10 million for her in her Series A for her startup. And I think they just turned profitable at $30 million a year in revenue. And she's no longer trying to turn people into robots. Well, I wonder if that is the, and that's a great story because it's, there's a few things. One is I want to try to create an environment where I feel comfortable. Yes. Why aren't they more like, right? Right. Where I feel comfortable. And there's so much to be said for where real, I'm just going to say growth happens, but we can put in brackets, human growth, company growth, whatever. Right. Right. You have to become uncomfortable. And I think getting, I'm guessing, getting her out of the mindset of why aren't they more like this so I can relate to them better. They're really like that. I have to get uncomfortable. I have to cross that bridge and get uncomfortable in a place I'm not so secure in. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot in there. <clears throat> the first is, as you point out, that it's a, a, it's a kind of internal wish to um, ameliorate her anxieties and trying to make her feel more comfortable. And so the wish is that everybody around her could be predictable and certain, right? And so what was really revealed here is the fear of uncertainty, the fear of unpredictability. I'm going to go one step further and, and note how much of a fan you are of that mystical subject known as innovation. And I'm going to venture that the more predictable an organization is, the more challenged their innovation can be. And what she did not realize at the time was that not only was she un afraid of uncertainty, but she was also afraid of innovation. She was also afraid of change. And so her leadership journey was about creating a space where, uh, as I like to say, the messes that are necessary to create masterpieces can start to happen. Yeah, it's almost like you have to be uncomfortable before you can become comfortable. Exactly. Or if I can go further, the, one of my Buddhist teachers, Pema Chodron, has a wonderful book, which is Comfortable with Uncertainty. And oh, I her, like that. Her, her advice to, is to sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane. And I can't picture a better image for a leader than that image right there. Yeah. And I'd say today, you know, uh, obviously, as I said in your bio, you were one of the earlies in Silicon Valley. Um, Which is and, a code name for me being old today, but go ahead. Yeah. I'm, I'm right behind you, my friend. <laughs> I am right behind you by like three years. So we're not far <laughs> apart, but uh, uh, you know, and I was, I was there as well. Um and what's interesting, and I and I often say this, uh, I joke that you know I was right in the sort of the middle of that tornado, right, mm -hmm. uh, a la Jeffrey Moore. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, in the middle of that tornado, and and my my leadership sort of aspirations and goals was not to then go be a CEO and go create a startup kind of entrepreneur path. Yours was. I'm going to go, you know, invest from a VC perspective and go help those that have really good ideas move forward. 
And I think that has a lot to do with making decisions on what kind of leader you are. Well, one, what you think you are and what maybe what you are really born to be is a very different comment than what you think you are and then what you are. Is that fair? I think that is fair. Um, and I think you're getting at uh, a really important theme, which is um, what we think what we're consciously thinking is our motivation isn't necessarily the complete picture of our motivation. And so uh, I got stuck a little bit on your description of me wanting to support leaders when I first became a VC. I did that because I was just, stuff was just cool. And I wanted to see cool stuff get created. I wanted to invent things and participate in inventing things. I fell in love with the inventors. I fell in love with the entrepreneurs. And then I began to understand that uh, supporting people in their leadership journey wasn't just an ethical and moral thing to do. It was also the best route to return on investment. But But what really got me going initially was wouldn't it be cool if this thing in, was invented in the world? Wouldn't it be cool if GeoCities was invented, for example, which was an early investment of mine? Yeah, and we, we actually have a common love for one of your companies you invested in, in one of the inventors, uh, Yo-Yo Dine. Oh, uh, Seth, the man. Yes. You know, he's one of my favorite humans. Um, yeah. He's been on the show, and, and uh, he's a big reason – for so many things in my career, including the book I published, he's the quote on the cover of my book. Uh, and, you know, I, I can tell you that I, I met him in 2000 mm. and right before Purple Cow. So sort of, you know, 2000 ish. And for 2002, when that came out and I was the uh, I was the beta client for Constant Contact and for Eloqua. Right. I was really early around some people that have it was super exciting. But I was excited to sell it. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. how can I sell it and how can I get more people using it? Mm. Um, Instead of going back to kind of what I was saying, right? Instead of saying, how do I, how could I actually help support Yo-Yo Dine go forward, you know, from a, from a whole growth perspective. But when you think about looking at the Yo-Yo Dines of the world, you know, back when you started uh, Flatiron, which was, I think, around 96, 97, right? 96, that's right. 96. And in in fact, Yo-Yo Dine was our first investment, which was, for for, for those youngsters on the call or are listening in, that was Seth Godin's um, uh, first venture-backed company. Not his first company, but his first venture-backed company. Which ended up selling to Yahoo, so it was a good investment. It was. It was. (laughs) It was. Um, But when you think about that, the Seths, you know, I use him as just the example, right? The Yo-Yo Dine sort of founders and thinkers like that group. What what stood out that was common amongst that first sort of group of Flatiron partners investments? I think it was that wish to invent the future. It was it was this uh, scary, exciting. incredible feeling that uh, we were witnessing the birth of something that had never existed before. You know, I often joke with my kids that I invented the internet and if, and uh, they're so tired of that joke, but, but the truth is we were around 
watching stuff happen. I remember first listening to audio coming in across the internet. That's how old I am. I remember the first iteration of real audio and you go to a website and you could hear it. That was astounding. Um, but back to Seth for a moment, there's a picture I have in my files of Fred Wilson, myself, Seth Godin, and a brilliant man named Steve Kane, who had built a company called Gamesville, its tagline of which was wasting your time since 1996. And the four of us are sitting around a conference table at the first office at Flatiron. And I often imagine the four of us sitting there saying, wouldn't it be cool if the world did this? And um, I have so many beautiful memories of Seth Godin, but the most powerful of which is his, uh, his dreamer quality, his belief in the future, um, his belief in what is possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a brilliant marketer. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think the basis of his, his brilliance is his belief in human beings. Well, and I think that's a great lead in to what you do now. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like, I just think he's a special human, mm. uh, you know, full stop. Mm -hmm. But, but, but part of being this kind of special human, you know, one of the things uh, you often say is the act of becoming an adult is hard yeah. <laughs> and sort of becoming that human kind of going back to the bullish and bearish. When I said you can build better leaders by building, you know, better humans. Yeah. Why don't you unpack that a little bit? Because I think, you know, there's this, there's a longstanding debate. You, you're either born a leader or you can become a leader, right? You're either born a salesperson, you become a salesperson. Like, you know, it's this sort of nurture yeah. versus nature. And, and what, what are your, what are your thoughts there? And, wh and why do you say that the act of becoming an adult is hard? Well, because I think, I think the, the experience, well, let's step back and define what I mean by adult. What I mean by adult has nothing to do with chronology, of course, right? It, it has to do with being a fully actualized self, being someone who is, for example, comfortable with your internal messiness and realizing that, <clears throat> um, as the poet Rumi says in his famous poem, The Guest House, this being human is a guest house. Welcome it all in, the sadness and the joy, all of it. And I think being a fully actualized adult means you get to see with discernment your strengths and weaknesses, your proclivities, your predispositions, if you will. You may be predisposed to be a sales-oriented CEO, or you may be predisposed to be an engineering-oriented CEO. But in both cases, you're being called to lead. And it's the fulfillment of that call. It's the answer to that call, that the answering of that call that presents the opportunity for you to confront the things that have always held you back as a happy, fully functioning, relatively stable adult. <laughs> In air quotes, relatively yeah, stable. Relatively stable. <laughs> you know, yesterday I was freaking out about something, you know, <clears throat> and realizing that as my therapist once taught me, my long-term psychoanalyst, this too shall pass. And that that's life. And that life is filled with ups and downs and ups and downs. And that's okay. All of that, are, all of these things are qualities of that adulthood that I'm speaking of. And 
when we have leaders who have fully appreciated the vast complexities of human beings and are a-okay with that, well, then all of a sudden we don't have organizations that are twisted into doing the unconscious bidding of those who have power. And that's the magic moment, that right there. Well, I think, you know, part of what you've just outlined has, I feel like a foundation in this kind of radical self reflection and inquiry process and awareness, right? On all the things you just outlined, like what are my strengths? Uh, a friend of mine, Naomi Simpson, doesn't call them weaknesses. She calls them non-strengths. So right, right. I use, I use non-strengths. So strengths and non-strengths. Right. Um, and having that real awareness. And, you know, I, I recently was doing uh, an event uh, across Canada and the U.S. with uh, Dr. Tasha Urich. I don't know if you know her work, but she wrote the book Insight. And it's all about this sort of self-awareness of who you are and that, you know, what you think about yourself is like 85% not correct <laughs> based on what other people say about you, right? That this right. gap between Right. You know, how capable you are and what you think, you know, those kinds of things. Right. And that we're so not we're not self-aware, you know, enough um, and that it and it and the answers to what they say about us really should help us figure out where are the opportunities for us to be better leaders, better humans, better whatever, you know, our role is at work. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you and I love her framing Um to, to, to jump to radical self-inquiry for a moment, yes, uh, that's, a, that's a term I coined. Um, it is not necessarily a written-in-stone process, but it's just a way to frame internal questions that are designed to sort of unpack your belief system. So, for example, I opened the book by talking about my relationship to money as it developed when I played Monopoly with my mentally ill mother and what that experience was like. And I came to understand later in my life, as I stumbled my way into true adulthood, that my initial impressions about money shaped all of my career choices, even shaped my investment decisions, even shaped the way in which I run Reboot, or I don't really run it. Yeah, I had the CEO title, but you know. Um, but the, 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 the delusions I tell myself, the stories I tell myself, the 80% of belief system about myself is shaped by things like, how do I feel about money? Oh, money is a means to safety and security. Okay. Then I'm going to organize myself around that. But the real question is, did you always have to have park place? Uh, Park, what I learned very early on was that St. Charles Avenue was much better to have because it was the number one, statistically speaking, the number one landed on spot on the entire board. So you could make more money owning all of the purple, especially St. Charles, putting a hotel on St. Charles, than you could owning both Park Place and Broadway. So you've heard it here first from Jerry, game theory <laughs> as it relates to Monopoly. So for those of you who have no idea what Purple is at Park Place and St. Charles, look it up. That's why I invented the internet. <laughs> <laughs> gotta buy the game. 
So now I'm going to play Monopoly totally different next time. You know, mm-hmm. Monopoly sure. game. I think you need to write a little ebook, Monopoly game <laughs> theory. I think I think that's the next one, Jerry. I, I I see bestseller right right on the cover. But here's the thing: I figured that out at eight. Well, hence why you ended up doing what you do, though. That I mean, it goes back to what we've just been talking about, right? It's sort of like it's shaped very early, and it was one of my questions in Bullish and Bearish, right? This sort of behavior or mantras we learn as a child shape who we are as adults. Like that was really telling to, you know, that was, that was very formative to you, right? It shaped you in many ways. And I had similar example when I was probably 19 or 20, I wasn't quite as good at eight. However, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, where I was working for uh, my best friend's uh, mom at the time. And and I just wanted to be her like full stop. Mm -hmm. That's who I wanted to be. She was, you know, a president of YPO very early, one of the first women to do that. And she had uh, indoor arcades, like, you know, back when games weren't in our hands, they were actually in places we had to drive to to go play. Mm-hmm. And um, the the top of the, the game uh, of, of the arcade, it was 15,000 square feet and it was like a big top tent, like at a carnival, right? So there was like mm-hmm. 10,000 light bulbs at the top. So when you were mm-hmm. in the arcade, it felt like you were in a big top tent. And that was the point. That was her vision. Mm. And we were, it was opening day and she walked in and I mean, we had been grinding to get this thing done and all the, you know, teddy bears and all the games and everything's vacuumed, everything's dusted. There's nothing's out of place. Mm. She walks in, shakes everybody's hand. I'm last in line. I, I was the general manager. I had opened it. I'd worked for the family for a very long time. And, uh, she just pointed her finger up. And in my head, I was like, okay, is she saying you're number one? Mm. You know, you're the best. Nope. She was pointing to one light bulb that was out. Mm. One. Mm. And that, you know, now my, you know, my talk track (laughs) and anybody listening to this knows that I'm all about customer experience. Mm. I'm all about the little things that add up to. So what did that say about what we thought about the people who came in? We didn't care enough to have it be clean or all the lights be on, you know? So I, I, that, and if I'm driving down the road, I'm now 53 years old, and I see a big brand with their sign with a letter out, it's the first thing I think. Like, what does that say? And so that shaped me very early about paying attention to all the little things as a leader. And people didn't understand when I would harp on the little things, why I felt it was so important. And it was that one moment in time, almost like you at eight. I, I love that story, Tiffany. I really, really love that story. Um, and what I was sitting here thinking was, I was really curious if we did a 360 degree performance review of you, one of the pieces of feedback would be, um, she cares so much about the customer experience. She cares so much that she pays attention to the details. And sometimes uh, the dark side of that superpower is you might be driving people a little crazy at times. Because I would, I, so I would tell you, you are 100% spot on. And yeah. I'd say, I'd say my, you know, I've done a 360, obviously many times yeah. and, and, and Tasha wants me to do another one. And I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know if I can survive <laughs> another one. You know what I mean? I'm I, like, do. oh, I don't want to know. I, I hope that I've made progress over the last 30 years of being in business, is what, you know, right. sort of what I perceive about myself. So I will tell you that you are correct. And I have had to work really hard on flipping that to be equal of employee first and customer centric 
versus customer always at the expense of employee. Right. And so I, I can't help but coach in a situation like this. Oh, here we and, go. Go for it. So, I, I, am I, I'm, I'm all in. And so uh, one of the things I would recommend, if you haven't already, is invite the people you work with into that story. Let them know that, because it's, it's not just about paying attention to the details, but I'm imagining now that you so admired this woman, you so wanted to be like her. So the downside is, I don't want to fail her, the internalized her. What was her first name? Linda. I don't want to fail Linda. So join me in making Linda proud of us. Let's make Linda proud. Yeah, and I think, and, and I would tell you that now, so now the challenge, you know, now that we're in full therapy mode on my What's Next podcast <laughs> is with Jerry and with Tiffany, Jerry. everyone's going, well, this has taken a total left turn. I don't think I've ever seen, you know, <laughs> Tiffany be this vulnerable and all this stuff, right? Okay, we're all going to go on this ride together. So, you know, we're going to keep going on this, but I, I would say that, now the challenge is I'm an individual contributor again. So I don't have a team of people. That does not mean that there are not people in my sphere, obviously, that you don't have to have people work for you to have that same issue, right? So I'm you not- You don't have to have people to uh, work for you to be a leader. Correct, right? So I totally understand that. So now my role is how do I get others to see that? And so what I'm going to do, I will make a commitment that when I tell that story, that I will put in the Jerry-isms of, and I realized very late in my career, <laughs> <laughs> like in my 50s instead of shit in my 30s, um, that it, it might have been, you know, re- well, I think there's all kinds of things that, that I could unpack on this, right? But I think that that goes back to, for the listeners, you know, what were uh, moments in your personal life that you see reflected in your work life, right? Whether it's Monopoly at eight or Linda at the, you know, arcade or, you know, whatever your story is. And maybe that's an opportunity to reflect back and say, is that, you know, is that, is there a number or two or three of those? Cause there's a couple of them, right? That's one that stands out and I always use as an example, but there are a few uh, and that start to shape who you become as a leader and not only as a leader, but as a team member, as a peer, as that's a mentor, great right? As a mentee, everything. That's right. That's right. And, and I would go back to the language I just used, invite people into that story. So what does that mean? So give an example. So as I was saying, you know, tell the story, but I thought it was interesting that you told the story without telling me Linda's name. And so the minute we bring Linda's name in, she becomes alive. She becomes someone that we she be, she ha, she takes on more than one dimension. Well, I did that for a couple of reasons. One, she's still alive. Two, I know wow. people who listen to this who know who she is. So it was more of that than me not saying her name. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. But, but when I, t- when I would t- encourage you to tell the story, I, w- I would say lean into how it felt or how it feels and lean into all of the self-doubt that got created when she held that one finger up and then invite the people to participate because just, just what you did was uh, by linking it to the listeners here in there, there is just like in my life, just like in yours, in each listener's life, there are those stories. There are those moments. There are those people. 
um, who shape you. And the invitation to, towards growth is to invite them back into your life in a lively way and to realize the way, in, in fact, they impact you um, and to call it out and to name it. Um, I had one client who began naming conference rooms for the names of people in his senior team's lives that it impacted them just the way Linda impacted you. And that's amazing, right? And I think that, you know, it goes back to being, uh, having this sort of, you know, uh, you know, this empathy and listening and openness. And I, I, and I'd say that I, I, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a, I'm making a hypothesis here and I'd love to hear what you think because we're about the same age. So I'd say Mm -hmm. if you, Think about what a leader was like when I first started working, like in my 20s versus my 30s versus my 40s versus today. I've really seen this transformation away from that kind of top down, authoritative, my way, no way, you know, that kind of leadership to a little bit, you know, a little bit more inclusive and um, open and transparent, uh, especially as we're dealing with a lot of crisis of trust right now between brands and employees and, and customers, et cetera. You have these socially conscious CEOs that are you know, trying to become more vocal. Obviously, where I work at Salesforce, Mark Benioff is one of them. Mm. Uh, and, and you sort of see this very different leadership style. Is that, a, is that a good assessment? I think so. And I think that, I think that what's happening is that the old structures are breaking down. Um, and we can look at mental health statistics, for example, to say, well, why are they breaking down? Or we can look at, you know, you identify the crisis of trust between brands and consumers. Well, if the leader is so rigid and distant, then the those who with whom they work are going to presume that uh, they cannot trust what, say, the CEO, she says. And if I can't trust what my CEO says, then how do I build a trustworthy organization? let alone trusting products. Well, I totally agree. So if you think about our listeners, right, they're on varying sort of degrees of where they are in an organization. Could be individual contributors, a team leader, you know, starting to move up the management and leadership ladder to people Mm -hmm. who are CEOs and executives that listen in. Um, What would you give as sort of, you know, a few pieces of advice? So now they've listened to this podcast, you know, they're running on the treadmill or, you know, they're driving to work, whatever they're doing in this 30 minutes of time, which I, I think says a lot. I think people who invest in continuously learning uh, always have a better shot at succeeding. So mm-hmm. they've at least made the first step. So now they've heard this and they're sort of mulling over in their head. Like, what are the one, two or three moments in time I can tie back to maybe that may have led to the way I am a whatever you are, you know, in your in your career? And so it's Monday morning. You know, mm-hmm. and now they're they're ready for the new week or the new day. And what would you be your recommendation for those that are individual contributors? You know, maybe just sort of one as people are moving in and up their career. Well, I always say that you have to begin with just sort of checking in with where you are. It's it's you know, I have this reputation for making folks cry. Um, in fact, that was the title of a Wired magazine about me. This man makes founders cry. And the secret question that I always ask people is, how are you? And I ask it with an intention of actually 
trying to understand how they are, and they almost always break down in tears. And the reason I think that that's so important is I don't know how one is capable of figuring out what one needs to do without first understanding where you are. How am I doing? You know what? I'm having a rough moment right now. Okay. Have we noticed that you have rough moments every Monday morning? Hmm. What's the pattern that's going on here? Hmm. How has that pattern been of service to you and how has it held you back? Now let's have a conversation about where you want to go with your life. So it's it's a kind of a three-step process. Pause. What's going on in my life right now? Second step. What are the patterns that are happening? And now let's talk about the future. That three-part sequence, I think, leads to a much healthier way to lead and a much healthier way to live your life. Well, Jerry, I feel like this was the best half-hour therapy session I've had in a long time. This was great. <laughs> Little did I know 32 minutes ago that uh, it would be this awesome. But I just want to thank you for spending time with us on the What's Next podcast. And, I, I, you know, I, I really, literally, I could continue doing this, but I want to be respectful of, of the 30-minute commitment that I make so that people always, uh, you know, have time to, to listen into the full show. But I have so appreciated this. I, I think I'm going to have to have you come back sometime. Or anytime. I might have to join you on Reboot for, you know, Therapy 2.0 or something. <laughs> anytime, but, Tiffany. It but was why don't pleasure. you let, uh, let our listeners know uh, how they can follow uh, follow you and, and get any more information, because I'm sure this will inspire them to, to learn more about what you do and what you say. Well, that's very kind of you. I am on Twitter, which is probably the best social media to follow me on, uh, at Jerry Colonna. Um, and you can check out Reboot.io, which is the company website, or RebootByJerry.com, which is the book website. Um, and the book is available now. Um, buy a thousand copies, hand them out to friends, um, make them cry. Well, I, I just I just want to personally thank you, Jerry, for making this just so much fun. So thank you for spending a little bit of time with us today on the What's Next podcast. And uh, I can't wait to have you back again sometime soon. You got it. My pleasure. Well, that was a first. I could have gone on for another half an hour. I hope you enjoyed listening to Jerry and I have a very sort of public therapy session about styles of leadership and what moments in time in our childhood really shaped the way that we both have been leaders and executives over time. I think it was fantastic. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Reboot Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. I hope you enjoyed the show today as much as I did. Please make sure you subscribe, refer it to a friend, leave some feedback, and also just enjoy the rest of your day. So thank you again for spending time with me and listening in on the What's Next podcast. I'll catch you next time.